We are up to Parsha's Toldos. Okay? We're starting at chapter 25, verse 19. I know a bunch of people have looked at the Torah portion already. So tell me what are we talking about? Wells. We got Wells. We had one Wells. Ainsov and Yaakov. We have Rivka and Birth. What? Ankle. Holding on to his ankle, right? Thank you. Blessing. Blessing. Very hairy. Huh? Very hairy. Yeah. birthright for soup. Chaining birthright for soup. By the way, I'm making lentil soup for Friday night. <gasps> oh. <laughs> oh. It's oh, obvious. Wow. So you shouldn't eat it. Well, we're not chaining um, our birthright. We oh, shoot. I didn't think about I'll that. I'll give you my birthright for <laughs> Yaakov. Okay, well, he's, 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 he's a pig and he's a camel. Yaakov going to... Yaakov okay. Yitzchak um, <laughs> and Rivka sending Yaakov to um, Laban. Look at this. We did the whole Parsha. Awesome. Exactly. Um, okay, so a little bit, a little, there's a couple of things that I want to talk about. I want to sort of put things in order because our, our roundup got, we got it all over the place, but I think we, we hit the high points of the Parsha. Okay, so the first thing that we're going to have this situation is um, we have the discussion of the birth of Yitzchak, uh, sorry, of Yaakov and Esau, Jacob and Esau. For some reason, I always mix up Yaakov and Yitzchak, so if I say the Same wrong name... If I say the wrong name, just correct me because I will make the mistake at least once during the, tor- the, por- the time of this class. So uh, Yitzchak and Rivka are married for a long time, married almost 20 years at this point, and she doesn't have children. Rashi says that for the first bunch of years she wasn't capable of having children. Either way, the time comes to really sort of make this happen in a, in a, in a serious way, and they both go uh, and they dive in, and, they, and, and, uh, and she becomes pregnant. And then, uh, and then in verse 22, what happens? What happens in verse 22? If you're, look, if you're looking at me, you're not going to see it. What happens in verse 22? The no, no, no. Verse 22, we skipped. What happened? Yeah, the children are agitated within her. She, why did I pray to be pregnant? Exactly. Why did I pray to be pregnant? What is going on over here? Now, and then what happens? She goes to get to find out what the situation is, okay? She goes to find out what is going on. She's pregnant with twins. Well, she doesn't know oh. that till she gets, there was no sonogram back in the day. So she thinks, and Rashi brings from, from the Gemara, that she, every time she went by a place of pagan worship, there was kicking for the child to get out. Every time she went by a place of holiness, the yeshiva of shame, the yeshiva of Ava, whatever it was, there was kicking for the child to get out, and she thought she had one child who just couldn't make up his mind, and that was not high on her list of acceptable options, okay? So what happens? She goes to ask, uh, she goes to get advice. She goes, it says, Lidrosh as Hashem. Aviv, we had this conversation. What does it mean? She went to ask God, and she went, Rashi says, she went to Shame, and she asked him, what is going on? And the message that he gave her, Huh? Shame, the son of Noah. All right. So he's like, still around. He alive? Yes. People oh. live. There, there was a lot of overlap of some of the some of the, the characters of the So Shame is still alive. And what does he tell her in verse 23? You have two nations in your room, in your womb, not in your room, in your womb, and two nations are going to separate from within you, and they will always struggle against each other. And the end of it is, and the older one will serve the younger one. That's, this is a prophecy. This is a pro. What? That's reversed. No. At the end. No, it's not reversed. It's not reversed. Um, and first of all, this is a prophecy that she gets. Now, she goes into this child-rearing expedition understanding many things, and we don't know that she shares this with Yaakov. She wasn't told. One of the things about, about prophecies is that when it's, for you, you don't, the prophet has to give over the prophecy to whoever it's meant to. But when it's a personal conversation, you're not necessarily going to have to share with them. We don't know that she shares this with, with Yaakov. Sorry, I told you I was going to make a mistake. We don't know that she shares this with Yitzchak. But there is a prophecy. There are going to be two great nations being, coming out of her. And they're going to, and, they're, and, they're gonna, and, and the older one is going to serve the younger one. Okay, so this is essentially what she's told at this point. It's an interesting thing that Hasidus asked the question, what were they struggling about? And Because the Medrash says that they were struggling over dominion of both worlds. Right? The Gemara brings that and the Medrash brings they were So why were they struggling? Why wasn't the division so clear? I do have a question, actually. What do you mean by both worlds? Do you like the... 
this world and the world to come. We could divide it this world and the world to come. We could divide it to spirituality and physicality. Why are they fighting over it? Doesn't it seem, from what we know of them as they grow up, you get one ballpark, you get the other park, you know, ballpark. Asa's going to get all the physicality. Yaakov's going to get all the, all the spirituality. What, what is there in the womb fighting for both worlds? Meaning both of them want both of them, right? It's not that, should I have this or should I have that? When they're born, their natures are such, they're each going to sort of gravitate in a different area. And so Chassidus asks, what is the point of this? What were they fighting about? What were they fighting about? Wasn't it so clear? And, 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 and as we discussed in Parsha a little bit, we'll see that it isn't actually so clear who gets what and which world belongs to which, you know, who, who, who does it really belong to? And we're going to get to that a little later in the Parsha. If I don't, please make sure to say what happened to the two worlds. Okay, that's one thing. Now, the interesting thing is that as, the, so then she has, she, she actually carries the children almost full term. Sigazund. And the first one, is born red Sigazun. Uh, uh, he's born red and hairy. And the name Esav comes from the word Asui. He looked like a grown up. He was made, he was complete, he was totally, uh, uh, he was like, he looked ready. And then afterwards, as Elisheva said, that the next one was born holding onto his ankle, and they call him Yaakov. And Yitzhak is 60 years old when these twins are born. Okay? Sigazun. What's with them being so old when their kids are born? They live for very long time. 60 is the new 20. I don't know. Um, now, as children, Rashi points out also, as children, till they hit bar mitzvah, they're actually indistinguishable. They're both learning with their grandfather, Avraham. They're, they're all, they're, they're doing the right thing. They're all, like you wouldn't, I mean, Tyra is giving us this, this sort of lead-in of a future situation, but when they're born, until they hit, like, really bar mitzvah, they really, their behavior is, I mean, one is clearly very hairy and red, and the other one is not, but they, their descriptions of who they are as people are, are not, it's, it's shaped not by what they, how they behave, but where they were going to be. Now, um, how are they described once they grow up? By he ace of ish yodayetzayid, ace of knows how to hunt, He's an ish sadeh. He's a man of the field. Yaakov ish tam Yosha ba'olim, and Yaakov is sincere. Um, naive would not be the right word to use, so I'm putting it out there as not the word to use. He's <laughs> I don't know what the word is. Is he gentle? Possibly, possibly. the The word of tam, um, we know, like from the Haggadah, we have this sense of simple, like the the the, the child who's the tam seems to be like not talking and not interacting so much, but the, the tongue really comes from a place of complete, a place of uncomplicated, a place of... Like content. Not only content, not only content. Introspective? Maybe unconflicted is going to be the word I'm going to use. He's unconflicted. He knows exactly where he has to go. He knows exactly what he's supposed to do. And he, that's where he's going. He's going to study. He's going to learn. That's where he's going to go. Now, in Tanya, I want to say one thing which I think is so fascinating. Hasidus loves Esav. Hasidus loves Esav. Like, now, I want to point out, not Esav who we talk about and who the Esav who lived, but Esav as a power and Esav as a potential. Hasidus is extremely, extremely enamored with Esav because of what he was capable of doing. And one of the things one could argue that if he had a predisposition towards world and, and all the things that he's going to end up doing, how could you blame him for being a bad person? How could you blame him for, you know, he's a hunter. This is his nature. He's, he's a hunter and he's a gatherer and he's, we're going to talk about him a little bit more, but how do you blame him if, if he's, you know, he, he, from birth, this was his, he, in, in the womb, he was fighting to go out towards Avedazara towards paganism. How do you blame him for whatever else is going to happen? And the Hasidus explains, and it's brought down in Tani as well, that the Altarebbe talks about that, Hash, Hash, that Yitzhak is going to ask Yaakov, no, he's not going to ask Yaakov. Yitzhak mm-hmm. is going to ask Esav to prepare for him, and we're going to have it later in the Parsha, matamim, foods, delicacies, in the plural. 
And, has, and in Tanya, the Altarab explains that there are two kinds of general delicacies that we have in the world. One are the things that are yummy and delicious right away. You pick an apple off the tree, assuming it's a ripe apple, but it's good. You don't have to do anything to it. It is a delicacy on its own. Then you have stuff that have to be prepared, they have to be cooked, they have to be spiced. And when we work with it, we are going to then have a different kind of delicacy, but not one that is, it's one that was worked with. And the Rambam, Maimonides, also discusses two types of personalities. One is the tzaddik, and one is hakoivish esitzra, the person who conquers his inclination. And really, the fact that Asaph has this inclination towards bad means that his job is to struggle. It doesn't mean that, oh, well, what should I do? There's nothing to do about it. I'm a bad person. No. The fact that your job is you're constantly pulled in this direction just means that you're, you would fall under the category, not of the perfect tzaddik who just sort of goes through the highway and nothing ever stops and nothing ever you know, distracts them. But the fact that you are pulled to distraction doesn't mean that you have to give in to your distraction. And when you give, when you don't give in to the pull of, you know, he's in utero rushing to go to Avay Dezara, when he doesn't give in to that, then he creates something even more beautiful and more special and a delicacy that the tzaddik doesn't give. So I just wanted to like sort of put that in there a second. Could somebody go turn off the air because everybody here is falling asleep. What, what is it called, Hakovesh? Et Yitro. One who conquers his inclination. Meaning just because I have, my inclination says to do something, but I'm a Baal Bechira. I am a person with free choice. I can either yes or not. I don't have to do it just because I want to do it. And I would just you know, tangentially, tangentially add over here that there are times in, maybe not in our lives, but in my life, where we, we give in to something and we do something Understanding that it's not good for us, understanding that it's not, and I would like to postulate that if we're making that choice out of knowledge, it's still better than just falling down the rabbit hole of bad behavior without having ever thought about it. There are sometimes we make a choice that, you know what I mean? I'm going to whatever, I'm going to not rise to my highest self right now, but I'm choosing to not rise. As opposed to like, oh, I didn't even think about that sin. All of a sudden here, this is where I am. Now, this is not, this is just my own little takeaway. This is not any kind of like authoritative, uh, <laughs> authoritative opinion, but there you have it. Um, so, so here we have really, 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 what was the plan? The plan was that we would have one child who was just going to take the highway and one child who was going to struggle and who was going to overcome and they were going to, and they were going to succeed in that area. Sort of parenthetically, but not really, when we say he is a ish sadeh, a man of the field, for anybody who is with us in Elul, when you hear sadeh, what does that, what's that hyperlink? What do we do in the sadeh? What do we do in the field? We work. We work. What kind of work do we do in the field? The physical work. All the work that we do in making this world a home for God, right? The Melech Basada, the king of the field, comes to the field because that's where the majority of the people are working. And through their work, they are supporting the people in the city, right? Esav is, he's an Ish Sadeh. That's where he should be doing the work. Not ending up as he did. Asa, the person who lived, ended up, ended up being a terrible person. He was a, a murderer and he was a, a rapist and he was, he was a terrible person. He was like a really bad person, the real Asa. But where the entire describes him as an Isha dead, doesn't mean it's not saying it as a critique, it's saying it as a potential. But that's not actually where he went. Okay, so we have the beginning. Then we have, as, as Stella pointed out, we have the lentil soup situation, so, uh, sell your birthright for some lentil soup and some bread, by the way. You forgot the bread part of it. Just saying. Um, and um, and uh, why, why was Yaakov cooking lentil soup? What happened that day? Avram dies. Avram dies. Okay, Avram passed away. And so Yaakov was preparing the food for the mourners who were coming back from the funeral. That same day that, Yaakov, that Avram passes away is when Asaph is going to actually kill his first person. Anybody know? Who did Asaph kill the day that Avram passes away? According to the Medrash brings us down. Who did he kill? In poetic justice, he kills Nimrod. He was hunting and he, he ended up killing Nimrod. When, 
Like, was he hunting Nimrod, or was he just out hunting and then killed him? I don't him? remember. I don't know. But, um, uh, I don't know. Well, he's dead now. And when he kills Nimrod, what does he take from Nimrod? Clothes? Yep. He takes a coat. A very, very valuable coat. Where did Nimrod get that coat from? Where is that coat originally? Adam? Yes. This is one that Hashem made for Adam and for Cain, that they should not be, the animals should not be afraid of it. And Nimrod has this coat. And spoiler for the rest of the parasha, where does Asaph keep this coat? Where does he store this coat? His mother's in his mother's house. He doesn't keep it with one of his two eyes. He keeps it in his mother's house. Okay? It's interesting, by the way, that some of the Mepharshim talk about the idea that he kept, because Rashi says he didn't trust his wives and he kept his most expensive valuables by his parents, by his mother, actually. And some of the Mepharshim talk about that he kept special clothing in his parents' house to change so that when he came to his father, he did kibbutz of in the most beautiful manner. He, had, he didn't come, like, in his... You know, clothes from the gym. He had special clothes that he changed into to go to his when he went to go to his parents, and that's why he kept those clothes. And that's according to one of the parshim. Okay, and what happens? And this is very human nature. Once they go through this whole thing, Asaph comes home. He's hungry, and Yaakov says, um, "He says, feed me." And he says, "Get your own food." I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> so he's like, "No, I'm so starving. Just pour the food into my mouth now." Um, and what does he say? I will if you... Sell me the birthright. Sell me the birthright. Sell me the birthright. And Asa says, what do I need it for? And included in the birthright was the future work in the Mesa Mikdash. Right? Oh, the, work, yeah. the future work in the Mesa Mikdash. The firstborns were officially supposed to be those, those people. And he says, what, if I don't need it. I'm going to die. I'm, he says, I'm going to die anyway. Why should I have this? Why should I have this birthright? And Rashi says, and he's like, the Kohanim so easily can mess up and, and end up having to die because of their... He's like, I don't want this. I don't want this. He gets his food. They make the exchange. There's nothing written. There's just an oral transa- transaction that goes on. And the immediate reaction that Esau has after that transaction is, Vayivez Esau And now he despises it. Before, it was something of value. Once he got rid of it, it's not enough to just say, hmm, what did I do? He has to talk himself into convincing himself it wasn't a good idea anyway. It was such a bad thing. It's such a bad, you know what I mean? It's not, it's not something that I would really want anyway, and I'm lucky to be rid of it, and the whole situation. Well, I don't understand. Why would he give something like that up? Like, it doesn't make sense. Why? Like, why would you, like, oh, I got this birthright. I'm going to, you know, Obviously, have, like, value. such a big thing. Like, I'm going to have a nation and all of that. Why would he just say, no, thank you? I think, I think, Still right. Like, Still, like, it was a really good suit. <laughs> <laughs> Um, one, one could only argue that if you don't see value in something, then, then, then why would I fight for it? And it's not even something for now. It's not for me. It's in the future generations. My children will have this. Like, really? Why is that? He's probably not going to live to see the base of McDush and not even talking about how history, it did in fact play itself out. He's like, it has, it if he's already, and at this part, the ace of who lives, not the ace of the theory, but the ace of who lives, has already made his choices, sort of which direction he's, he- he's heading into. And if we talked about ace of as the potential to being the kovash at Yisrael, to be the one who's going to you know, overcome his temptations, the ace of who actually lives, not at all. That's not his path. He's like, go for it. He's going to become the hunter and the, the everything. He's going to totally embrace. He is exactly, and we're going to talk about this after, he's totally the same Mida, the same character trait as his father. If his father is Gavur, his father is strength. What is the opposite end of the spectrum of strength? Opposite end of the spectrum. Take, take Gavura. Now it's a different Mida, different Mida. If on one end, Gavura is strength, where does it go to in the bad side? Cruel. Cruelty. Cruelty. Oh, no. The other side of, of Gevura, where, where in Yitzchak, the Gevura manifests itself in strength. And in, we're going to talk about his digging wells and his, his, his sense of right and wrong Yitzchak and clear bad. Yeah, Yitzchak is Gevura. Esav is also Gevura. Esav is also Gevura. But he took Gevura down... Who comes from Esau in the end? Anybody know which country oh, comes? Romans. The Romans come from Esau. So he has perfected the art of cruelty 
to a new to a new form, and they but they are on the same spectrum. They are. Yitzhak and Esav are on the same spectrum, and that's why Torah describes that Yitzhak loves Esav. He recognizes. He recognizes it, and he said, and and we're going to get to the brachas in a second. But he, there is something very familiar about Esav, not Esav, as he is manifest, not Esav as he's living now, but Esav. This is like his mama. She's a kid with a report card with a little, you know, he's not living up to his potential. Yaakov, sorry, Yitzchak really believes that with more love and more connection and more, he'll be able to pull Esav over to this side. You know, like tug of war, right? They're sort of fighting on the same street. And Yitzchak really believes that he could, with the love, pull Esav onto the side of Kedusha. And then, and Hasidus agrees with this, Esav as a power is much more powerful than Yaakov. Much more powerful, but he's the bull in the china shop. He's not tamed. He's not channeled. He's not anything. So then he just becomes a destructive force. But in potential, in what he could have done, out of this world. And Yitzchak is holding on to that and saying, "Can we get him into? Can we get him onto our team, so to speak?" Okay. How much input did Yitzchak and Rivka have in terms of like? the kids because like I feel like a lot of it's like if you think like nowadays you think nature versus nurture like if he had that potential wouldn't your parents want you to access that potential and help you gain that potential rather than just leave you to run wild well the question is did they leave him to run wild you're assuming that they he they left him to run wild that's actually not true and in the nature versus nurture conversation this is your perfect example of it can't possibly be nature they had the exact same parents, they were raised in the exact same household. I always say, no two kids are raised in the same household, right? This one is older, this one's younger, the parents are up to this, they're doing this, but these are twins. They came from the same two righteous parents. They come in the same household. They both learned with their grandfather, Avraham. And there is, you know, so we're going to say, we, we, don't, we don't assume that they raised them as, as, you know, just said, oh, you know. Come back before dark. Like, go play and come back before dark. We don't assume that that's happening. But there is a certain point where the parents are not responsible for the education to a certain degree. This is my, my take. Like, there's a certain point where, like, they're going to make their choices and they're going to live their lives. And, and now the question that we're going to ask is how, who knew what and what did they know about it? You know, that, that's sort of where we're leading to the next, to the next thing. Now, once we have this conversation about... Yaakov and Esav. The next thing we have in chapter 26 is a famine. So and what is a famine? Again, again. Yeah, history is going to repeat itself and repeat itself. So, what does Yitzchak assume he should do? Go to Mitzrayim. Go to Mitzrayim. What does Hashem say? No. No. Do not leave the borders of the land of Israel. Because you were holy. Exactly. Because you were brought up as a sacrifice, you're not allowed to leave the borders of Israel. So, he goes to Gerar and he's by other. Yes, Stella. What does a famine represent? No food. No, I know no food. Oh, oh, oh. (laughs) (laughs) Not what is a famine, but like, I guess more like spiritually, metaphorically. Okay, so what does, you tell me, what does a famine represent? I mean, (laughs) emptiness, I don't know. Like maybe, like there's like a lacking of something internally, usually when there is a famine, that's when they have to go somewhere and that's when they have to go to a different place and that's where they experience some sort of like growth and then they come back. So Right. So so first of all, yes, all of those are true. One could also um you know, different people react to the fam to to I'm just saying, this is I'm going out on a limb here. Don't you don't have to buy my challenge. Um <laughs> different people react to the famine differently. Mm-hmm. You have the people who say, like, we're going to just ration a little bit that we have and hope it ends before we run out of supplies. You have the other ones who say, where is there, and I'm going to change the word, where is their inspiration? They're looking for food and they're looking for water. We know that's never only about food and water. It's always about Torah. It's always about where can I do something. So in a place of famine, when we're in a place of uninspired space, of dry parched, right? All those famine words. When we are spiritually or emotionally in such a place, we're not talking about the physical part. The physical part, like, 
go to Trader Joe's. <laughs> I don't know. Just that, but, but your question is not about the physical. The question about the spiritual and emotional. And for us, when we are in a place, you know that feeling of like everything's dry? I, I can't. Mm-hmm. When that spiritually is where we are, then we have two, two possible answers. Possible answer number one is like, I have like a little bit of inspiration. I could somehow schlep this out and I could maybe sort of, will this tide me over? Or can I open my eyes and say, where can I go for Torah? Where can I go? This is not working. This situation is not good. It might be good for everybody else. Maybe they have more stores in their basement, but I don't. I need to go someplace else. And the ability to pick yourself up and move from a place that is spiritually not good for you, mm-hmm. as you're saying, in a place of a famine, that's what we need to do. We need to say, this place is not feeding me. This place is not sustaining me. And if it's not sustaining me, I can't do my avodah Hashem. So your point, Stella, of go and then come back is also well taken. Sometimes that's the answer. And sometimes the answer is, just go. Just go. <laughs> Just go. Meaning, meaning the place that we see with, with the Avais is that they definitely are going and coming back to places. There's definitely that place of going, refueling, and then coming back. Mm-hmm. And I would say that for us personally, the question could go in both directions. Mm-hmm. Like we have to first go back to a place where we're not parched and we're not dying and we are thriving. Mm-hmm. And then say, wait a second. Now, we're, now where does Avais Hashem call me? And that's also going to be part of the conversation that we have, that we're going to have over here with you to talk about, you know, which we'll get to in a second. And, it, like, going back is, I mean, like, just based on this discussion, too, like, I feel like um, going back might also be part of, like, the Avos is, like, Avoda. Like, that's part of their... Nahan, for them, for them, it's definitely part. The question is, for us, yeah. is that the right answer? Mm-hmm. And sometimes going back is just going back and spinning our wheels mm-hmm. again and say, is this productive for me? And is yeah. this where I'm going to, is this what Hashem wants me to be doing right now? And perhaps the answer is no. Mm-hmm. And I would suggest that you should have a good mentor to speak to, to say, somebody who knows what's going on with your life, to say, what should I be doing? Okay? So he's told not to go down. He gets another bracha here from Hashem that stay in the land. I'm going to bless you. You're going to have children. Everything's going to be great. Everything's going to be wonderful. Um, so again, if you were going to look at a, a um, chronological... Where did he go then? He, he, he stays in Gur, which is basically like close to modern-day Aza. Oh, that's okay? my thing. Where's Aza? Down south, going towards Egypt, but not, but not leaving. It's on the coast. Ish. Yeah, okay. a coast. Um, okay, so he says that, you're, that you stay and you're going to be great and it's going to be good for you. So he stays in Gur. He stays in this place. And the people say, oh, who are you traveling with? And he says, my sister, sister, right? He doesn't say to her, notice, he doesn't say to her, say that you're my sister. He just throws that one out there. And what happens? The guy caught them, catches them. Yes, but what happens to Rivka? Nothing. Nothing happens to Rivka. She doesn't get taken to the palace. She doesn't get, what happens is, as Elisha said, Avimelech, who's the king, comes one day, he's looking, in today's terminology, we definitely call him a peeping Tom, and he's like, check it out, and he sees that they are having intimate relations, which I want to just point out, which I think is so beautiful, the terminology for them having relations together is litzachek, is, is a joyful, it's, it's coming from, his name is Yitzchak of joy, but also the, 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 the description of their relationship, their intimate relationship, is mitzachek, is playing, which I think is a very special thing. And so Abimelech says to them, what did you do? Somebody could have taken her. Anybody in the city could have taken her. How did you do? Meaning nothing happened. Nothing happened. She wasn't taken. She didn't have to go through the ordeal that Sarah went through twice. And what does Yitzchak answer Avi Melech? He said, she's your wife. How would you say? She's my sister. And what does Yitzchak answer? Because I said that I would be killed because of her. Okay, and then? Then Abimelech says, what is this that you've done? One of the people has nearly lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. And then does he answer that? No. No, no. <laughs> Yitzchak doesn't say anything. He doesn't even answer the question. 
He looks at Avimelech and he says, somebody would have taken her. We know the score. That's all. He doesn't even say anything to her. He doesn't say anything to him. He just basically, in a gvura fashion, calls him out on what he's saying. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't say anything to him. But he definitely lets him know, I got you. We know you. I know what you're thinking, you know? And so, A, so it's interesting. We have the same story-ish. Mm-hmm. Because they say that she's, he says that she's the sister. He doesn't discuss it with her first about saying it. She doesn't get taken. And when he gets told, why did you do this? He's like, because I was going to get killed. And he's like, blah, 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 blah. And he doesn't even respond to that. And what happens after that? He stays in the city and he's extremely, extremely successful. So what does it mean on a spiritual level? I could make up an answer. I could make up an answer. Should I make up an answer? Yeah. Yitzchak's. And we're going to see this in his personality. Yitzchak's personality is, is gvura, but it's on, the, it's on the strength side. It's not a cruelty. He knows exactly who he is. He knows exactly what he needs to do. And he doesn't have any, and he doesn't have any qualms about being, in today's terminology, he's a proud Jew. And he doesn't blink or, or, or flinch in the face of somebody trying to give him a load of you-know-what. He doesn't. He just looks him down. And he's like, really? And, and I think that if we were going to say, where, where's the next stage in our development as a body and a soul together, is that place of, if I'm a proud Jew, I don't have to be apologetic about what I'm doing. I don't have to be apologetic. We've had the conversations of the body and the soul and how to go to, into dangerous spaces. We're not going there. But I think that the place that Yitzhak teaches us is not to be apologetic about who or what we are. He ju- this is who I am, and this is what I do, and, 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 and the world falls into place for him. And that is something I think is very powerful. When we are actually strong, not in an obnoxious way, not in an aggressive way, but in a real deep way, um, we, then the world doesn't argue with us. All of a sudden, things start to, things start to, to fall into place. So he, now what happens is, the next thing that we hear about, about Yitzchak is this well-digging. I want to point out that Yitzchak lives the longest of any of the forefathers. He lives, a, he lives 180 years. Avram dies at 175. Uh, Yitzchak, uh, sorry, Yaakov is like, a, in, uh, I don't remember, maybe like 137, 100, like a, those numbers. Yaakov, Yitzchak lives the longest. He was 180 years. We have very few ideas. Of, we have very little information about him. We know like this. A, he doesn't travel around so much. And B, and this is going to be very, very important for us, this well-digging behavior. And we, I discussed it with some of the people uh, making coffee and whatever. But I want to bring it here as a, an organized thought. What is a well-digger? Someone who digs a well. Thank you. Somebody, somebody who digs a well. Now, there are different ways, and different, there are different ways to, to dig a well. The first thing that we have to know, and is a little bit about the world, is that the entire world has water in its center. You can always get water. The question is, how hard is it to get? Some places it's much easier, it takes a little bit of effort, some places you need heavier machinery, and you have to get something, you know, but you, there's always water accessible. And when you get to the water that is from underneath the, uh, the, underneath the earth, it is going to be pure and clear and clean like nothing else. It, is, it will have no contaminants. Even if it has to fight its way up through rock, it will come up and it will be clean, clear water. What is the difference between Avram and Yitzhak? Avram says to everybody, here, have water, here, have water. Take water, take water, take water. He goes around and he gives water, slash Torah, to everybody. Take water, take water, take water. Okay? What happens to Avram's wells? Take it out. They don't get dried up, they get filled. They get filled. They get filled. Because essentially what Avram is preparing, he's making a reservoir. He fills it up with water and have water to drink. Yitzhak's like, dude, I am not bringing you the water. You have the water in you. I will help you find the water. I will help you dig into your soul and find the inspiration and find the Torah that you already have. I'm not giving it to you. I am here to let you know, A, that you have it. 
be that I believe you can find it and see, I will help you if you need. But I will not do it, I will not do it for you. And whatever comes up through that cannot be stopped. And it is so clear and pure. It's, it's for sure. It's, it's unstoppable. It's unstoppable. It's, it's amazing and clear. It's hard work. It's so much more easy for somebody to say, here, have some cold water. Here's a, a spring. Here's a something. Come, I'll inspire you. Here's a wow, you know, exciting. Harder work is to break your teeth over the Rashi and break your teeth over, you know, the, the learning and really own it in a deep way. That's Yitzchak. Abraham's like, here, I'll tell you a nice story. And I'll t- inspire you and I'll talk to you about God. And Yitzchak is like, read it yourself. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly right. You had a question. Yes. Where are Esau and Yaakov in all of this? Because like they say, then like they, they talk about Yaakov and Esau and then there's a time. Exactly. So that's why I said in the chronology, it's not clear. Where did, it's almost like the Chumash is taking like, like it's like a not very clearly written play. Like here we meet, you know, Yitzhak and Rivka and Yaakov and Esav. They have their little thing. They sell the birthright. And now we go to Yitzhak and Rivka with a famine, with the digging and the wells. The kids are not so part of it. And really the... It's a flashback. So the question is, what... It, there's different ways one could talk about how the parsha is built. And one of the ways is sort of flashing between Yitzchak and Rivka's vision of what Judaism is supposed to look like as it's interspersed with the children who are going to be the next generation. So we're going to have that going on. So our first visionet, is that how we pronounce it? Yeah. I was close. Um, <laughs> starts off with Rivka getting a prophecy that there are two nations and the older is going to serve the younger. And it finishes off with the older giving over the birthright to the younger. That's sort of where that first one closes. And now we go back to the Yitzhak and the Rivka story, and we hear about their time in Grar and the digging of the wells. And it's going to end up... Where is it? It's going to flip back to the boys soon when it's time to give them the brachas. Um... I thought like the way that it's lined up is kind of interesting because I feel like it's almost giving more context to who Esau is because um, like when Yitzchak the payment hits he's trying his like first impulse is do what his father did to copy what his father did and he says no like that's not your path and then he sort of does the same thing that his father does saying that his wife is his sister but he does it in his own way exactly so it's like he it's not just he's copy pasting. Um, his father, it's like he's transforming it to continue the work. Right. Um, and he's so is trying, we see with him, he'll try to like do the, like, he'll do like the surface level of what his father's doing. Like, oh, I'm 40, so my father was 40, so now I'm going to marry a woman or whatever. Right. But he's not really doing the actual work that Yitzchak is doing, which we're seeing here. Exactly. Of not just copy pasting your parents, but transforming the mission and like finding To own it, exactly. To, exactly. Beautiful. Exactly. Because where Yitzchak says, oh, I should copy paste oh, no, I shouldn't, mm-hmm. Asaph's like, oh, copy-paste, and it's going to be fine, and nobody's going to notice that underneath the copy-paste is, like, murky yeah. <laughs> and, un- and not so good. Okay? Well, po- well taken. Your, I, your, Aviva, your point is very, very well taken. Okay, so now we have the whole situation with the water and the wells, blah, 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 and he gets to find it to a place for Chovot. That's where there's finally no fight about it. Um, it's interesting that the Talmud talks about that he has, one of the wells is named Sitna, and they say that, because that's where uh, anger comes down to the world, that, uh, and, and they say it's like, it's like Sinai, that the place of the Jews bringing moral uh, values to the world does not make people like them so much. And then he gets to Rehovot, and, okay. We um, said it, so he has, okay, Da-da-da. So then they have, oh, this I think is so cool. Such a Yitzchak moment. So, right? Just like, because it's constant Yitzchak moments. It, well, it's his, this is the only parasha we hear about Yitzchak. I mean, the man lives such a long time. This is the only parasha we hear about him. But Avimelech comes to make a covenant with Yitzchak. And when, when Avimelech, whether it's this Avimelech or a different Avimelech, and his general come to Avram to make a, a thing, they just make, he makes a covenant. And when they come to Yitzchak, Yitzchak is like, why here? You kicked me out of your city. You, you were jealous of me. Why, why'd you come? And they, they have to answer. They have to say, oh, because we see you're a man of God and you're successful. We want to be near you. Not because, like, essentially, 
I'm paraphrasing, like it's not like we change our mind about if we like you or not, but you're a successful person, we want to hang on to your, your coattails. And they actually do end up making a covenant over there. Um, parenthetically, when the Jews come to the land of Israel, after about uh, almost 400 years later, they're going to run into issues with these people who said, oh, your, you, your parents made a covenant not to fight us. So it's going to come back in, yeah, whatever. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, so then we have Asaph is 40 years old, and he marries these two women, and it finishes off at Tiena Marasruch Lisa These two women are bitter. They are, they are terrible, bitter, bitter people. Um, and chapter 27 is going to come up to the, to the brachas. I want to pause for a second. Medrash talks about, uh, gives an example of a king who had many ministers, and um, and each one had a different, you know, this one was in charge of this, and this was in charge of this, and there was somebody who was in charge of construction, and the other people, and there was another minister who was in charge of food. So one person, the minister who was in charge of food, always had activity at his, everybody who was coming to the minister who was in charge of food to get food, the, the minister who was in charge of construction, it was a little bit more quiet there, and he wanted some action. So he went around the kingdom, and he broke, Houses, so that people needed to build things, and so they came to the ministry, the minister of construction, to have their needs filled, and they described that that is what Asa was. Asa was uh, was the minister of construction of building, but he so he he didn't go to anybody whose house was very strong and stable. He went to the people whose place whose things were slightly shaky, and their relationship with Hashem perhaps was slightly shaky and he would poke holes in what they were doing and he would break down their walls and say, really, you're such a tzaddik, you're such a righteous person. He would really like sort of knock them down and then they would have to come to him for stuff, um, which is sort of, as we say, the, the cruel end of the gvura where we sometimes see people struggling and is the best thing for us to do to kick them in the head when they're struggling or is, it, is our job to sort of help them a little bit and say, We'll, we'll brace you while you find your footing again, and that would be perhaps also a version of strength which Asaph was not so capable of doing. Anyway, so now, so that, I'm saying just as far as where, where his, he was and what he ended up doing. They talk, the, the stories that they talk about Asaph, like here at 40, he suddenly becomes, you know, a viva and he was a pig and a camel. So that Asaph, till now, he was literally going around and hunting women from their husbands, and he was, not a nice person, actually, but then he's going to do cut and paste and say, oh, I'm going to get married at 40 and, and see, I'm just like my father. Um, now, the question is, and we're going to get into the question. Did you have a question that I'm cutting off? Okay. Now we're getting to the place of the whole birthright. Not the birthright, sorry, the brachas. Yach, sorry, yes. Yitzchak. Yitzchak is getting old. He's now within five years of his mother's time of passing. And the Talmud tells us that within five years of your parents' passing, you should um, consider your mortality. Um, huh? Just to, it's possible. Now, it turns out he actually is going to live five years longer than his father. So he is within five years of a parent, but now he's 123 years old, uh, and he's within, no, can't be 123, because Sarah dies at 127, so minus five is 122. Isn't it related to unnatural death, too? Like, if, like, for whatever reason, like, your God forbid, like, somebody's parents died in a car crash, like... Right. I don't know. I, I, I don't actually know practically what it means. Okay. I don't know what it means practically speaking, because there's a certain place where the Talmud also says you should always live as if you're a day before your death, you know? You should live a day before You, you should live as if it's a day before oh, your death, okay. right? How many times people who have some kind of brush with death all of a sudden are like, oh, wow, I would have missed this. I should call this. I should do this. Per- I, all these things that I should do. So we should really be living our lives in that way. Here, in, this, in, in Yitzchak's point, he was trying to put his affairs in order and say, what am I going to do? And he basically is going to give, he's going to give the, he wants to give the brachas to Esav. Okay, he's going to give, he's, he's going to go through this whole situation of uh, take your, I might be ahead of the game, though. He doesn't get him. No, not, not that. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. When Yaakov asked Esau for the birthright, like, back in the suit, was Yishag aware? No. 
He was not aware of it. There were two things that Yitzchak is not aware of. He's not aware of Rivka's prophecy, and he's also not aware of this situation, which he will become aware of in the context of, this, of the blessings. So he says to Esau, get two animals for me. Now you've got to think. Yitzchak's 120-something years old. The Medrash says that he needed two animals because it was Pesach. He needed one for a Pesach sacrifice and one for a Chagiga sacrifice. He wants to be put into a place of expansiveness so he could give him a blessing that isn't just coming from Yitzchak, which would have been awesome, but it's coming from directly from Hashem that he would be able to channel something directly for Hashem for his son. He wants to give him everything. And so he tells Esav, and just imagine, you know, with all the, the, the trash talking of Esav, Esav has one incredible, incredible, incredible uh, quality. He loves his father. He respects his father to no end. So when his father says to him, what I need you to do is to go trap two animals and then shecht them. Don't shoot him with a bow. He won't eat it with He is trusting, and Asa would never come back with two animals that he just shot and killed and prepared for his father and say, I caught them, I trapped them, and I shechted them. If anybody is involved with hunting or animals, which I am not, but you know that many animals are skittish and they will run when they, they sense danger. Asaph has to go out. It's going to take effort for him to go and he's going to find, he's going to have to trap animal, two animals and prepare them and then shech them and prepare them on the whole shebang. So he's out. Exit, door, run. Okay, in the meantime, Rivka hears about this and she thinks this is a terrible idea. And she doesn't go to Yitzchak and say, this is a terrible idea. We know she does this. She goes to Yaakov and she says, we need to circumnavigate this situation. We need to do something about this. And so she, and he's like, Yaakov, what's Yaakov's media besides Tiferes? What's the, what's the synonym to synonym to Tiferes? I don't know what synonym. It's an English word. I might be mispronouncing it, but it's an English word. Synonym. 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 What's another word? Another word to describe Yaakov. Emes. Titan Emes Liakov. Give the truth. He is a man of truth. For him to go into this situation is painful. It's not like, oh, he's like the sly brother who's going to like do this. This is a painful place for him to be. And his mother says, if you respect me as your mother, trust me that you need to do this. And he takes, she takes two animals that the Rashi brings from the Gemara that she was given in her ketubah that every day she could take two sheep for her own personal use. Wow. She must have had like, Yitzhak was very rich. I don't know what she would have done with the animals, but today she takes the two. two she was entitled in her ketubah. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's just a place that how generous Yitzhak was. I don't know. But this was in her ketubah. So she goes and she takes animals that actually belong to her. He says, and, he, and, and the, the wording is, is uh, he, 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 she, he says, he, Yaakov says to him, Yaakov, sorry, Yaakov says to Rivka in verse 11, chapter 27, verse 11, he's like, my brother is very hairy and I'm all smooth and he's going to touch me and he's going to curse me. My father's not only going to not bless me, he's going to curse me. And she says, I'll take it. Anything your father says negative, I'll take. And they end up going ahead with this and, um, Wait, is um, Yitzchak blind? So Yitzchak is blind. He definitely can't see. Um, Rashi says, Rashi says, A, he's blind from when he was at, when he, that at the Akeda, the angels cried and the tears went into his eyes. I heard that too. He also, three, Rashi gives three reasons. Also because, uh, so he's, he's blind from the smoke of the, the Avedizah, the smoke of the Avedizah of the wives of Esav. Ooh. And the third is that so Yitzchak should get, so Yaakov should get the brachas. So like Rashi brings three different interpretations of what's going on. But one thing that we're going to see from the story, he might have been physically blind, but he wasn't actually blind to Esav. Okay, because we think that Esav, you know, was pulling the wool over his eyes and he, you know, he fooled his father. He didn't fool his father. Because if you see what's going to happen is Yitzchak is, sorry, Yaakov is going to go in they put on the clothes. I can't even imagine how hairy Asaph was. That goat skin would have felt like his hands. It just, it just sounds like another level, right? And you hear, if you look at the words, he's, uh, 
he takes the food, he goes to his father, and from the first time he opens up his mouth, his father's asking questions, right? If you take a look, um, in verse 18, he comes to his father, he says, Avi, Vayomer Hineni, Miatabini, who are you? This is his first question, who are you? So Yaakov says to his father, Ani, Anochi, Esav, Bechorecha, and Rashi says that he paused between Ani and Esav, Bechorecha, I am who I am, Esav is your firstborn, I did what you told me to do, Kumna, please sit up and eat, for, eat from this food so that you should be able to bless me. And Yitzchak is really suspicious. He's really suspicious about the whole situation. He's like, how did it go so fast? And he says, because Hashem helped me. And Yitzchak and he's even more suspicious, which means Yitzchak isn't clueless to who Esav is. This language is unfamiliar to him. Um, and he says, come over so I can touch you if you're my son. And he comes closer, he touches him, and he says such powerful, powerful words that we, the Jewish people, have internalized in such a deep way. He says, I call, call Yaakov, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And we've taken it not only in this, but sort of as like a, like a Weltanschauung, that our place, Jews don't fight, Jews don't go to war, Jews... We don't, the hands, the warrior, that's Esau. The voice, the prayer, that is, uh, that is the voice of, you know, that's what, that's what the Jewish people do. Today, it's shifting a little bit, but it's been, it was actually, a, every time any kind of Jewish defense uh, society wanted to try so to defense, come up. because we don't attack, we only defend. Besed, but there was always this conversation, that's not what we do, that's not what we do. When the IDF started, all the, anytime you had Jews fighting, there was always like this conversation. We don't do that, Jews don't do that, Jews don't do that. So that's I'm just, this is where it's coming from. And, um, and he doesn't recognize that. He gives him these beautiful, beautiful, beautiful brachas. Rashi says that when Yitzchak walked in, no, he doesn't say it. When Yaakov walks in, Yitzchak smells Gan Eden when he walks in. And he is convinced that Esav did it. We did it. We got him over to our side. <coughs> Parenthet. <coughs> Parenthetically, Rashi says, what does Gan Eden smell like? He smells, it smells like an apple orchard. It smells like an apple orchard. So he ends up and he gives him these beautiful, beautiful brachas of physicality, of wealth and, and sustenance and blah, blah, blah. And he gives he, Hashem, if, we, if, you, if anybody's familiar, after Abdullah, these are brachas that we start to say. The fat of the land and the and all the nations should serve you and beautiful brachas and Yaakov exits stage left and Esav comes backstage right and he very roughly says to his father get up and eat and now Yitzchak is very very nervous because what did he do? He just gave, how did this, how did, how did we make such a mistake? How did this happen? Right? And, and he, he's very, very upset. And Yitzchak is, is terrified. He's very, very nervous. He said, who was it that hunted food and gave me food and I gave them a bracha? And it says, uh, Gam Baruch Yehiyeh. He also should be blessed. It's in verse 33 that this person, whoever it was that came in, and he is coming from a place of fright, he, he also says that he should also be blessed. And the Talmud actually uses this as, a, as proving that sometimes things that are supposed to be under your control, your speech is, should be always under your control. Sometimes when you're lucky, Hashem takes over that power. And where he really wanted to not say this, Hashem put those words that whoever was it stole your, the brachas should also be blessed. Um, and yes, at Asa, when he hears this, he starts crying, a bit loud, bitter cry. And he says to his father, please bless him, please bless me. And he says, and, and in verse 35, Yitzchak says, your brother came b'mirma in, 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 with cunning and he took your brachas. And that's, he said, and so then the ace of answers, that's why he's called Yaakov. This is the second time he tricked me. And then Yitzhak is like, second time? What was the first time? What was the first time? And that's when he says he took the brachas. And that's when Yitzhak realizes, 
oh, it went to the right person. It didn't. The brachas that I'm trying to give to the firstborn actually went to the person who now is the firstborn um, over there. And he says to him, and, and, and Asa's like, is like, give me a bracha. And Yaakov's like, Yitzhak says, I gave your brother everything. I gave him to be your boss. Anything I give you now goes to him. What do you gain if I give you a bracha? And he says to him, and Esav says to him, do you only have one bracha? And he's like, he said, I can give you, he, he squeezes out a bracha that when your brother will not follow Hashem, you will be his boss. And we're in the Gullus of Edom for a long amount of time. Clearly that bracha worked. Um, and, and, he, and, and, and he gives him some more brachas. And then Asaph leaves, and he swears, when my father dies, I'm going to kill my brother. He's not going to do it in his father's lifetime. And Rivka, again, hears about that. She hears Rashi says she heard it in Ruch HaKadosh. And then she goes to Yitzchak, and she says, we got to marry off Yaakov. If he marries these Canaanite women, my heart will be broken. Maybe send him to my brother, see if he could go there. So then, and this is the part I want to, I want to get to. So Yitzchak calls Yaakov, and he says, you know what? You shouldn't stay here. You should go go to your uncle's house and you should um, find a wife there and then come back. And at that point, he gives him a bracha in verse in chapter twenty eight. Yitzchak gives Yaakov a bracha. Okay, another bracha. Verses three and four and three and four. He gives him vayitin lechas birchas Avram lechal zaracha itcha. I'm giving you the covenant of Avraham is going to you, which means when Esav said, do you only have one bracha? It wasn't like, oh, I could give you the other one. No, no. Yaakov's bracha to be the continuation of the Abrahamic dynasty, that was never going to Esav. That was never going to happen. But what, what, the, what Yitzchak saw was two brothers who were going to work together. Esav would rule physicality. Yaakov would rule, would rule spirituality, and together they would make the world a perfect place. But Rivka said, you can't give the materialism to the hands of the materialists. you got to give the, the material to the person who doesn't want to be there. Because then he isn't looking to gain it for his own purpose. He's looking to gain it only for the future. He's only looking to gain it for his children, for Hashem. He's only looking... The, the Gemara actually says that, ya, that Yaakov puts these brachas aside for his children. He had no need of these brachas. It was a bracha that he accepted, so to speak, on behalf of his children. And Rivka saw that the only way to make the world a godly place is to have one person in charge of both parts of it. That one person would say, why do we need physicality? We need physicality so we could have kosher food and we could have beautiful shuls and schools and pay t- teachers decent salaries and all this. Like, that's why we need physicality. And why do we need... Sp- and, and that way we feed into the spirituality. Somebody, they're not into the career strictly for the career. They're into the career because what am I going to do with this? How is this going to be a, an opportunity for me to connect Hashem? One of the, another thing that it talks about in Hasidus so one of the things that Rivka was seeing when she, taught, when she wanted Yaakov to get the brachas was that she was seeing us. If Yitzchak wanted to give Yaakov a bracha, which he did in fact give him at the end, he would have come, Yitzchak the righteous, Yaakov the righteous, and he would have prepared properly. He would have said, you know, the whole book of Tehillim, and then he would have gone to his father and gotten the bracha, and it would have been tzaddik to tzaddik. But what happens to the rest of us who we live our lives, and maybe we're not so perfect, and maybe things aren't so perfect. So, so Rivka says, I can envision a time where there will be people who look like Esau. They're wearing clothes of the hunter, of the, you know, whoever it is, but inside they're really Yaakov. They're really souls on fire trying to connect to Hashem. And those brachas have to come to us, because that, honestly, I don't know about you guys, that's where most of us are. We are, we aren't as good as we think we are. We're not as bad as we think we are. We're trying to do the best that we can. And the world that Rivka saw was a world where souls were dressed in Asa's clothing. And she wanted us to know that whenever we go into the world and we interact with the world, we should know we have to do it on our terms, not on of terms, not on the world's terms. We're doing it, we're really Yaakov and we're going to go with the strength of Yitzchak and we're going to go with the bracha of Yitzchak and we're going to really be able to go 
and do incredible stuff because we aren't just what we look like on the outside, but because we have this powerful soul on the inside, and that's where we're going to be able to be successful. We're going to talk about next week, we're going to start picking up the story of Yaakov and his children and everything that's going on. This is the end of, this is the one part that we really talk about Yitzchak. So I want to give us a, a bracha, a Yitzchak bracha, that this week, today and tomorrow is Rosh Chodesh. So we're really moving into that place of light. And one of the things that the light can do is it can illuminate for us and help us illuminate for others. And that we should really have the fortitude of, Yit, of Yitzchak to be able to dig deep and not be content with the surface level, the easy water at the side of the beach that comes in and ruins our sandcastles. We should know that even when we're in a time, maybe not a famine, we should pr- try not to get to such, such levels. But when we get to a place where it isn't so easily accessible, but we do know that we have the water in us and we have the ability to dig and to bring it out and the water that comes out will be beautiful and life-giving, not just for us, but for anybody that we share it with. Have an awesome rest of the day. Amen. Amen. Thank you.